glittering delights. And here your host, Dr. Leyland. Continuing my look at the David Michelinie Todd McFarlane run of Amazing Spider-Man, the first three parts of which can be found back in episodes 165, 170, and 174. Amazing Spider-Man 315 is where we left off last time, so logically that's where we pick up this time. It came out in January of 1989 with a May cover date and has Spider-Man randomly diving into a pool of water. Apparently this is enough for Hydro-Man, whose bottom half is the pool of water, to proclaim Hydro-Man wins at last. A disembodied head, that of Venom, answers, yeah, right. It's a really weird cover. Hydro-Man has this bizarre bouffant hurdo. Venom's disembodied head answers Hydro-Man's statement as if he's actually there. And Hydro-Man is neither forcing Spider-Man under the water, nor is he holding him there. So I fail to understand why Spider-Man seems to be in so much trouble. It's eye-catching, though, which is, I guess, the point of a cover. It also makes out that Hydro-Man is the main villain of the piece, something that turns out to be completely untrue. A cover? Lies? Say it ain't so. A matter of life and debt opens at the Colorado superprison called The Vault. Hugh Taylor has just got out of the army, and this is his first week on the job. He likes it. It's well paid, decent steady gig, and he's on to have served. So when he sees a guard lying dead in Eddie Brock's cell, he sees red, then black, then nothing at all. See, the dead body was Venom, and with the security shield down, Eddie kills Hugh and is free once more. Free! <laughs> Let's pass this down, should we? Eddie rationalises that killing Hugh was necessary, which it really wasn't. He could have used non-lethal force. In fact, he does exactly that later on in this story. He didn't, and chose not to. He's a killer. Now, can he be redeemed and turned into an anti-hero? Sure, I guess. But at this point in his development, he's as barmy as a cake. A balm cake. Balm cake's like a bun. It doesn't matter. Secondly, how did the symbiote get to Eddie? When last we saw them, they were encased in a sonic cylinder at Four Freedoms Plaza. I doubt Reed Richards would have turned over both Eddie and the symbiote to the vault, as it makes more sense he keeps the symbiote for analysis, assuming, of course, that the binding of the two hasn't got to the point where separating them isn't viable. It does beg a more moral question, such as, was the symbiote tried for these crimes. It's alive, after all. The alternative is that Eddie and the symbiote were tried and convicted as a duo, and both were sent to the vault. If this is the case, and Eddie and the symbiote can't be separated, who turned off the sonics in Eddie's cell? To be able to use the symbiote to pull this ruse, to get it to change his appearance into that of a guard, he has to have nothing that's disrupting him. Which means that the sonics in the cell must have already been turned off. This wasn't a real dead guard. It was a dupe. 
So for Eddie to escape here, Hugh has to A, not know there's another guard working at the moment, and two, has to have turned off the sonics in the cell to allow the symbiote to operate, which doesn't happen until after Hugh sees the dead body and unlocks the cell. I'm not entirely sure that this makes sense. Anyway, we cut to Spider-Man, who is fighting Hydro-Man at a construction site. Hydro-Man is trying to rob the payroll. Spider-Man takes great delight in pointing out to Hydro-Man that this isn't the 1880s, and firms pay their employees nowadays by cheque. There's no cash to be stolen. <laughs> this is even quite more laughable today, where everyone's paid by direct debit. Spider-Man lures Hydro-Man near the cement bags, and the powdered material mixes with Hydro-Man, and he suddenly finds that he needs to flee before he turns into a solid lump. It's a decent enough fight, moderately well choreographed by McFarlane, and it's always nice to see Spider-Man use his brains to defeat a foe. Spider-Man doesn't pursue Hydro-Man because, well, why would he pursue a dangerous criminal? He has his photos, that's what matters. Spidey returns to his Forest Hills home, the one he's sharing with Mary Jane, Aunt May and her boarders after having been kicked out of their condo by Jonathan Caesar. That was a nice piece of exposition, somewhat better than the actual exposition you found in the comic. Okay, more parsing. One, my golly, McFarlane's hinks are heavy in this issue. That's one thick black line he's using. Second, Peter's casual sexism probably went unnoticed back in 89, but sticks out worse than McFarlane's inks now. He's desperate for money due to returning to college, and MJ's savings are being tied up in the litigation with the whole Jonathan Caesar thing. However, Mary Jane's new earnings wouldn't be tied up. He doesn't have to be the sole breadwinner in the house anymore. Granted, MJ's lack of a current gig is setting up later developments, but Peter still doesn't seem to have adjusted to the fact that his wife earns more than he does, and money doesn't seem to be that much of an issue to her. Until, again, the whole Jonathan Caesar thing. Peter sees that Nathan Lebensky is up to something shady, being all grumpy and sneaking around, putting May's purse back in her bag in a not-at-all suspicious manner. Michelini is following the last writer, Tom DeFalco, in his characterization of Nathan. When Roger Stern wrote the strip, Nathan was a good, solid, salt-of-the-earth old geezer who was quite good for May. DeFalco made him grumpier, and now Michelini is giving him even more soap opera-style problems in the form of a gambling issue. Peter decides to keep his eyes on Nathan, and later on in the street confronts him about what he saw. Nathan tells Peter that he's in a lot of trouble. His gambling has taken a turn for the worse, and he owes some serious people some serious money on a serious house in serious earth. Peter tells Nathan he'll keep his secret, for now, and puts the money that he just made from selling the Hydroman photos back into May's account to cover the money Nathan just took out to pay the deposit on his debt, which I thought was quite sweet. This isn't a bad little subplot. Gambling is an addiction for some people, and Nathan may have started out in just a few nickel-and-dime games, and it's escalated. But I do miss the more avuncular Nathan. Peter doesn't believe Nathan when he says he's out of the game, though, and the Spider-Man follows him when Nathan steps out later for some fresh air. Spider-Man is right to do so. 
Nathan is having a meeting with the people who want the money, a meet that almost goes badly wrong. Thankfully, Spider-Man is there to stop the meet getting violent, but it's Peter Parker who saves the day. He tells the loan sharks that if they don't back off, the photos he just took of them about to murder a senior citizen will find their ways into the hands of the DA. There's not a lot to this issue. It's a typical Marvel Comics interlude, in that the main story is more concerned with a social issue, in this case gambling, and setting up subplots such as Mary Jane losing jobs, Christy Watson's eating habits and crush on Peter, and Venom's escape. As mentioned, McFarlane's art is really dark, and he also seems to have got to the point where he's chucking away the model sheet, depicting Mary Jane in a way that bears little resemblance to how she's previously been drawn. There are a few noteworthy panels of Spider-Man swinging, as usual, but McFarlane's storytelling is quite subdued here, as this issue is first and foremost an actual story, rather than a pin-up book. As such, it's not playing to McFarlane's strengths. Speaking of social issues, over in Spectacular Spider-Man we will learn that Kirsty is bulimic and the hints of her constantly eating but putting on no weight are a reference to that. And what a venom, you ask? Well, he threatens to kill another guard to disable the CCTV cameras around the vault and escapes, hitchhiking back to New York. Issue 316 is one of McFarlane's most recognisable and reprinted covers, and rightly so. Venom looms over Spider-Man, blood dripping from his hand. Spider-Man, flat on his back and looking slightly worse for war, seems down and out. It's unmarred by copy, apart from a small, redundant box proclaiming, Venom is back! It's a great cover, especially if you're a Venom fan. Dead Meat opens with Venom proving to a hobo that hanging around this sewer is not a good idea. The hobo flees, and Venom takes back his residency in an old abandoned fallout shelter he discovered back in his reporter days. As he dusts off his dumbbells, he plots and schemes about how to murder Spider-Man. Okay, where did this hideaway come from? In issue 300, Eddie was staying in a tenement building in the South Bronx. It's not his using and finding it that's the issue. It's that he already has gear down there. So, somewhere down the line, Eddie Brock heaved a load of weightlifting equipment down into the sewers and into this abandoned fallout shelter, but then he resealed the door. Okay, it, it's unlikely, but it's, it's not impossible. Implausible, but not impossible. Spider-Man, meanwhile, is completely unaware of Venom. Apparently it's not been reported on the news that Venom's escaped from the vault. Besides, he's got enough problems of his own. He saves a cop from certain death, but in taking his automatic photos, is sure not to catch Spider-Man in them. J. Jonah Jameson is currently only buying pictures that show Spidey in a negative light. And not even that from Peter, only from rival photographer Nick Katzenberg. Peter drops by the bugle to try and sell his pictures, but Jonah's secretary, longtime pal Glory Grant, is also distracted. She's all loved up! due to having found a new boyfriend. These are passing references to Amazing Sister title, The Spectacular Spider-Man, where Jonah has been replaced by the chameleon, and Glory is dating a werewolf. Which is half of the course in the Marvel Universe, I guess. Mary Jane has her own problems as well. Yet another modelling gig has been cancelled. Marvel was always good at building subplots, something largely forgotten in more recent times, as each story arc is written either for a trade or a long-form run. 
It is maddening reading this in isolation, though, as the Kirsty and Jonah storylines won't get resolved here, but if you read these monthly, as I did, it was a nice cross-pollination. Meanwhile, it's time for more subplots. In this case, one that has been brewing for a while and that we thought long forgotten. The black cat is searching for Peter, wanting to rekindle their relationship. She's tracked Peter to the Bedford Falls condo, but so has Venom. Venom's takedown of the black cat is unnecessarily violent and brutal, and I could certainly have done without seeing him smash her face full on into a wall. Venom believes that the black cat has no idea where Spider-Man is, but no matter. He'll track him down, and his wife, soon enough. Black Cat, still reeling from having her face smashed into a brick wall, reels even further at learning that Peter has a wife. This subplot will now return into hibernation. Downstairs, Mary Jane is getting the mail from the doorman and she spots Venom swinging away. She rushes home to tell Peter, who, get this, starts phoning various government institutions and he tells them that this is Spider-Man calling. Was, was Star 69 not a thing yet? This seemed a very risky move to me. Surely a government agency could have possibly traced the call. Now, granted, they may have thought it was this cook pretending to be Spider-Man and paid it no never mind. But still, there was a risk there. Anyway, Peter is incensed by the government's lack of assistance regarding a crank call from someone pretending to be Spider-Man and he vows to find Venom before Venom finds he and Mary Jane. The full-page splash that follows is impressive. It's typically McFarlane, with Spider-Man's legs seemingly able to loop around his head, and it lacks any real logic. Why, for example, is Spider-Man shooting a web behind him? But essentially, you know, this is what we're here for. The background looks like it's a real photo, a technique Jack Kirby, Neil Adams and John Byrne all attempted at various points in their career. Personally, I preferred the earlier panel, swinging past one of New York's many bridges as it was less showy, but I can see why this would be a standout page. Spider-Man's plan is foiled as Venom ends up following him for ages, Spider-Man apparently forgetting Venom can block his Spider-Sense. The final four pages are therefore a bit of an anticlimax. Spider-Man and Venom end up mixing it up in a meat-packing plant, and Venom pretty much owns Spidey due to this home-field advantage. In what I presume is a nod to Carrie, Spider-Man ends up covered in offal, loses his cool, and legs it, after first crushing Venom under some conveniently placed machinery. Venom, however, is only stunned, and he finds Peter's clothes, which Peter had stupidly left webbed to the wall. I say stupid because this makes no sense. Spider-Man left from home. He didn't leave as Peter, and then get changed. So why are Peter's clothes here? Seems rather ill-conceived to me. Ill thought out, perhaps. Obviously, McFarlane needed a way for Venom to locate Spider-Man for the next issue, and presumably forgot what he'd established a few pages ago, or perhaps thought we just wouldn't notice. So it isn't ill-conceived. It's contrived. Isn't this what editors are for? Peter's card reveals that May's house is on Ingram Street in Forest Hills. I looked it up. Houses in that area seem to range in the 1.5 to 1.8 million dollar range. Why the hell did May never have any money? Again, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this issue. It's fun in its own way, but McFarlane's art and some substandard plotting give it all a superficial feel. 
McFarlane's two or three panel pages and full splashes means it fur runs along without the feeling of any depth or consequence. It doesn't help that most of the issue is referencing subplots that have no relevance to this title, and so it all feels rather slight and inconsequential. Venom is visually impressive, but he doesn't really do a lot. And whilst it's fun to have a villain who's all muscle and brute strength, his lack of intelligence ultimately means the stories aren't very interesting. Issue 317 concludes the story, again with a pretty spectacular and iconic cover. If nothing else, McFarlane excelled at the covers featuring Venom. Has Venom become kinder and gentler? Read our lips, Spidey. No way, runs the cover copy, as the symbiote tries to engulf our hero once again. The Read Our Lips line is a cultural reference, making light of President George Bush's remarks during the 1988 Republican Party conference that he wouldn't make any new taxes. This saw print eight months after he made that remark, so it was probably dated even then. Nowadays, I would imagine readers don't even recall that this was a political reference. Technically speaking, Venom is only on the cover in the barcode, but it's a pretty good example of McFarlane's ability to create an eye-catching visual. Above the logo, the strapline, the world's greatest comics magazine replaces the non-mutant superhero which has been there for the past dozen or so issues. The Thing makes a small cover cameo objecting to this and prefiguring his appearance in the actual story. Peter is preparing for a day out with May when Eddie Brock arrives at the door. Peter's, hey, we've moved cards, led him right to Forest Hills. Peter, despite seething, walks around the neighbourhood with Eddie, who tells him he won't fight here as he tries to avoid killing innocents where possible. <laughs> All right, Eddie, whatever you need to tell yourself to sleep at night. He will keep to this, Venom promises, if Spider-Man agrees to meet him at a remote estate on Long Island, a holiday home of a Daily Globe publisher that Eddie is aware of. I'm not entirely sure I agree with Eddie's rationale that he avoids killing unless absolutely necessary, given his past history, but sure, whatever. Page two, where Peter tries to keep Eddie's grubby paws off May without her noticing, is amusing. But again, it's the full-page splash on page six that steals the show. Rather intelligently, Spider-Man doesn't decide to tackle Venom alone, and instead decides to rope the FF into help. Peter, however, has completely forgotten, once again, that Venom can negate his spider-sense, and Venom tells him that calling in outside help is cheating. If I were Peter, I'd be getting checked out because his lack of recall regarding Venom's main superpower is particularly disturbing. Also, why didn't Peter just call the Fantastic Four from home? Venom can't see what he's doing. He would have known if Peter had made a phone call, and he could have done that, arrange for the FF to ambush Eddie, get the symbiote back in the sonic cage, and we'd be done with this haphazardly plotted tosh. Yeah. Peter decides to keep his word and tells MJ he's walking into the jaws of death. Mary Jane basically tells him to screw that noise and get some goddamn help. This moment, where Peter seriously thinks he may not make it through this, is touching, even if it is a less successful retread of what Bill Mantlo did back in Spectacular Spider-Man issue 78, where Peter, preparing for his final battle with Dr. Octopus, some strange usage of the word final with which I wasn't previously familiar, and he visits all his friends to say goodbye. That worked better than this, largely because A, Doc Ock is a villain of long standing, and two, Mantlo had been working up to this since issue 72. Venom just hasn't earned this yet, baby.
Anyway, Spider-Man visits Dr. Charles Jefferson at the Brooklyn Psychiatric Facility, who for some reason has a moustache that has been exposed to gamma radiation. In that, it's green. Why has Spider-Man visited Dr. Jefferson? Well, because Jefferson is an expert of some renown, and he tells Spider-Man that the symbiote still shows signs of having a love-hate relationship with Spider-Man, and Spidey's spurning of it led to it channeling its love in the other direction, towards hate. However, the core emotion is still love. If Spider-Man can appeal to that side of the symbiote's nature, he may be able to turn the tables. Hmm. And thus, a major plot point cometh. Armed with this information, Spider-Man meets Venom at the appointed location. Fight happens. The next six pages are Spider-Man and Venom fighting, which is, you know, it's fine for what it is. Everything Spider-Man tries, be it fire, trying to track Venom with a spider tracer, or just an outright physical confrontation results in Venom defeating him. Some of the fighting is well done, such as the initial fight on the beach, whereas some of it, the fight near the jetty where the speedboat is kept, makes no sense. Let me paint the scene. Spider-Man flees to the garage on the water where the speedboat is kept. Page 17, panel 2, shows that the lock for the boat doorway is A, at the back of the garage which is silly, as the owner would be letting the boat out onto the sand if we assume that the back of the garage leads onto the sandy beach and the front of the garage takes the boat out into the water. There is also a lock on the door at the back, which I guess makes sense, because it's presumably for if the owner ever wanted to take the boat out onto land and attach it to a car or a jeep and take it elsewhere. However, that lock is above the door. The door opens onto the water. There is nothing for anyone to stand on whilst opening the door unless they can hover or, gee, I don't know, climb walls. Two, the lock is shown in that same panel to be at the far side of the door. In the next panel, Spider-Man can be seen stood on the ground, pulling the lock off. Again, unless Spider-Man can walk on water, and Christ analogies are more Superman's bag than Spider-Man's, he shouldn't be able to do this. This is especially dumb storytelling as, I don't know if this is common knowledge, although I did foreshadow it earlier, Spider-Man can crawl on walls. Now, if Spider-Man uses another door, say one on the side of the garage, then that would make more sense. But McFarlane never shows us this. It's yet another example of his lax storytelling. Even more egregious, this garage bears no resemblance to the boat garage scene on page 13. It's possible, I guess, that the owner has more than one place to store his boat, but again, it seems unlikely. The fight concludes when Peter magically takes off his costume on page 20. Adorned in only his tighty whities which are red for some reason, Peter addresses the symbiote and tells it he can have Peter. Torn. The symbiote can't decide between Eddie and Peter and tries to return to Peter despite being melded with Eddie. Eddie is aghast, and the strain of trying to sever its bond with Eddie causes both the symbiote and Eddie to pass out. It's a massive letdown, to be honest. Peter learns that the symbiote is still driven by obsession and love, but still goes through six pages of a fight that he needn't have bothered with before finally deciding to try this. However, Pete's thought processes on page 20 make it clear this was his plan all along, but he never once thinks about it or tries to make any effort to try it before 
two pages before the end of the issue. Now, had Peter tried to reason with the symbiote throughout this entire fight, try to appeal to the symbiote directly whilst simultaneously antagonising Eddie, getting him angrier and angrier that the symbiote may be preparing to abandon him, this could have worked really well. If Peter had made Eddie careless, angry, clumsy, steadily riling him more and more because he's paying him no never mind, he's appealing directly to the symbiote as if Eddie is less than nothing. Then, the final few pages is Peter finally calling the symbiote's bluff and getting it to try to leave Eddie. Eddie fights to keep it, and it's that that causes the conflict between them. Both the symbiote and Eddie end up fighting each other, and the pain of the rejection and trying to split the bond is what causes them to pass out. That's an ending I can get behind, because it's Peter outthinking a foe that he needs to outthink, because going toe-to-toe with Venom is stupid. As it is, the actual ending doesn't really work, despite the setup, as the two scenes feel disconnected. It also feels rushed. Peter just leaves Venom on the beach and says he'll take the next bus home after calling the Fantastic Four to come and pick Eddie up. Sure, Peter, leave it to the Fantastic Four to clean up your mess. I sure hope this dangerous criminal doesn't come around and get away before they arrive. I have no idea what's happening here. Michelini is a great writer who seems to either just be shucking this stuff out or the editor is more in love with what McFarlane's doing. As McFarlane is perceived to be the one selling the book, probably not incorrectly, the editor, Jim Salakrup, is telling Michelini to write simple stories that can be drawn to feature lots of big panels and splash pages and, and any discrepancies where we can fix them in the dialogue. This approach is about to reach its nadir. It doesn't help that the villain of the piece, Venom, is just boring. There's nothing to Venom in these issues. He wants to kill Spider-Man. That's it. He's looking very much like a lizard-type character who has one story. And we did that story in issue 300. This is a retread of that. Now, I have the benefit of 30 years of hindsight, and I know what Venom became. But based upon this issue, I would not have predicted his longevity. I still don't really get why this one-note murderer hits such a chord with readers. The cover to Amazing Spider-Man 318 is, I think, where my love affair with Todd McFarlane is starting to wane. McFarlane's shtick has been putting Spider-Man in unique contortionist poses that, whilst difficult, were not implausible to gymnasts or yoga masters. This cover, however, sees Spider-Man twisting his head back from his body whilst his torso faces a different direction, his left arm is across his torso, whilst his right arm is behind him, but his hand is posed in a way that makes his wrist look broken. His legs likewise seem independent from each other, and one leg looks significantly shorter than the other. The scorpion lashes out at him with his tail. His swing misses Spidey, instead smashing a building. But as the scorpion's eyeline is looking well off into the middle distance, it's no wonder he missed. Sting Your Partner opens with Michelini poking some gentle fun at his X-Men colleague Chris Clermont, referring to the scorpion as the best there is at what he does. Which he isn't. The scorpion is trying out his new suit upgrades provided by Justin Hammer. These upgrades include mace and acid, as well as a membrane over the eyes to prevent Spider-Man's webs from impairing his vision. 
Hammer isn't doing this for the lols. In return, Hammer wants the Scorpion to kidnap someone named General Musgrove. Certain European countries want Musgrove for reasons that aren't considered important, and if Hammer gives Musgrove to them, they will favour Hammer's trade agreements. Hmm. Maybe Hammer should be negotiating a Brexit deal. I quite like the opening. McFarlane does a good job portraying the Scorpion and his antics, and Hammer is suitably smarmy. Besides, Hammer smokes using a cigarette holder, and that's a clear sign he's either a femme fatale or a bad guy. I'm not sure that employing someone as high-profile as the Scorpion for a simple kidnapping gig is the smartest move, but maybe that's part of the plan. Spoilers, it wasn't part of the plan. Elsewhere, Peter and Mary Jane are looking at new accommodation. These small, yet mightily expensive flats they have been looking at are either out of their price range or not to their taste. It's a nice bit, but Peter's pop culture reference to the flop movie Leonard Part 6 is a real head-scratcher nowadays, as is the Pee Wee Herman gag. It's weird, but I find the pop culture gags of this era really irritating, whereas Stan's stuff never really bothered me. It's not that they're dated per se, it's that they aren't funny. Peter can't land a photography gig because Jonah isn't feeling himself at the moment. Now, that was a gag I did find funny. And Mary Jane finds she's been dropped from her modelling gig yet again. She compensates by reverting to her party girl persona and she hits the clubs until 3am. McFarlane does a pretty decent job with Mary Jane's facial expression on page 11, panel 3, and depicts her as pretty much nude for all of page 12. But the character dynamics are worthy of note. Peter is pissy with her that she didn't call, which is rich given how many times he's been out until the wee hours of Spider-Man. He also tells her she's never home anymore, and one of us has to earn a living. This could have been a much better scene than it is, a little glimpse at the chink in the armour of their marriage. This entire situation would put a strain on them, and this could have been a good look at them dealing with it, or not. An actual, honest-to-God, realistic marital argument could have occurred here, followed by reconciliation and then the resultant adult conversation. But it doesn't. For one, it's never been mentioned before that MJ has been avoiding going home and has been hitting the clubs. It's just dropped in here like it's a thing. But we've never seen it mentioned before. Second, Peter is a real dick when he says one of us has to earn a living, and more could have been made of that. We say stupid things in arguments with our spouse, things we wish we could take back, but we can't. The first steps towards portraying a realistic marriage could have been taken here. But sadly, it's all sorted in one panel and Murray Jane and Peter go back to having a perfect Teflon-coated relationship that has been the norm so far. But hey, we got to see Murray Jane for most of this page with nothing on. So, you know, who wants realistic and interesting writing when we can look at that? To be fair, when I was 16, I was probably happy to look at that. The next day at ESU, Peter learns that the kids at ESU are pissed off that Musgrove is getting a peace medal and are going to protest. The kids at ESU will apparently protest a picnic. Peter ditches class again to go and take pictures, figuring this may be a newsworthy piece that Jonah may pay for, especially as it doesn't involve Spider-Man. I initially wondered if Musgrove was perhaps based upon a real person, but then I got distracted by Peter's sartorial style. He lives with a fashion model, and yet he wears a sweater tucked into white jeans. Nobody but a psycho would tuck their sweater into their pants. 
he webs over to the Brooklyn National Guard armory, and we also see the Scorpion putting his mask on in preparation for... Wait, 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 back the truck up. I thought the Scorpion was trapped inside his suit. It's one of the reasons the Scorpion, a.k.a. Mac Gargan, hates Jonah Jameson. Jonah paid him to become the Scorpion to fight Spider-Man, but that experiment backfired and he's now trapped in the suit. Now, I know he gets out of the suit later, just before he becomes Venom, I think, but Norman Osborn does that for him. So that must be well after this, as Norman is currently dead. Only in comics can someone be currently dead. Anyway, Spider-Man sees Lance Bannon here taking photos, which annoys him. Jonah won't pay for the same photos twice. He's about to leave when the Scorpion arrives and moves in to take Musgrove. Spider-Man is having none of that filth and they fight. It's brief and quite unspectacular, although Spidey gets off a couple of cute tail-related puns. But the Scorpion then pulls an old chestnut out of his tail. He smashes a wall so it'll fall on innocent bystanders. Ignoring that we've seen this countless times, Spider-Man then must prevent the wall from doing serious damage. As Spidey is distracted, the Scorpion overhears Lance Bannon mention that he's taking photos for the Bugle, and, not willing to provide Jameson with a dime, the Scorpion changes his tack and decides to kill Musgrove, unless Jonah is delivered to him within the hour. The story picks up in part two, The Scorpion's Tale of Woe, a nice punny title, with tail being spelt T-A-I-L, as in what a dog has, rather than tail, as in a story told many times. None of that matters. The cover of Spider-Man trussed up and surrounded by Black Lash, the Rhino and the Scorpion. As Black Lash intones you double-cross Justin Hammer. Now you must die. Surely it's the Scorpion who double-crossed Justin Hammer, not Spider-Man. I mean, looking more closely at the cover, it may be that Spider-Man is tied up so as to be kept out of the way. As it does look like the Rhino and the Scorpion are closer to the camera and charging at each other. But the perspective is off. We're not clear who Blacklash is actually talking to, but we're not clear that the Rhino and the Scorpion are fighting each other just based on this cover. Equally irrelevant is that the cover doesn't really depict anything in the issue, so it doesn't really matter, ultimately. Anyway, long-time readers of Spider-Man, and long-time listeners to this show, will know the Rhino as another in the long line of Spider-Man arch-adversaries from the John Romita days. He's a Russian thug who charges at people with his horn. Only in comics is that not pornographic. Like the Scorpion, he's stuck in his suit. Blacklash, however, is traditionally an Iron Man villain and hasn't really had many dealings with Spider-Man. His main weapon seems to be an electrified whip. Again... Only in comics is that not pornographic. We open a few moments after the conclusion of the last issue. Spider-Man is returning to the National Guard armory with a pizza, as the Scorpion has gotten hungry holding Musgrove hostage. Spidey has the last laugh, though. He got anchovies on Scorpion's pizza, despite explicit instructions not to. Heh, <laughs> that'll learn him. Gotta take your victories where you can. The splash page of Spider-Man swinging across New York is cool and all, but Spider-Man's left leg has disappeared. Sure, you can argue that at the angle that we're looking at him, you just can't see it, but it ends up just looking really daft. After some expository dialogue to catch us up, we learn some new information. Jonah has refused to cooperate. Given that Jonah is currently the chameleon, this isn't a shock. The Scorpion takes Musgrove on a helicopter ride, and Spider-Man attempts to follow, but the Scorpion cuts his web line. 
Our hero manages to get a spider tracer on the scorpion before falling into the drink. He survives, obviously, but decides to go home rather than try and track down the dangerous criminal he just let escape. I'm going to be brutally honest, lovely listener, I'm getting a bit bored of this trope. Spider-Man ditching going after a super-powered criminal, a super-powered criminal he lets get away, just so we can delay the final confrontation until the end of the issue and pay some attention to the subplot, is overplayed at this point. And structuring the stories in such a formulaic way is getting predictable. Still, it did allow for a fun opening, and Spider-Man having to avoid the propellers of the chopper in mid-air, and then having to survive the fall into the water, was a nice little action sequence. Justin Hammer, meanwhile, is ever so slightly annoyed that the Scorpion has reneged on his deal, and decides to send other operatives after him. Please, Hammer, don't hurt him. Well, not directly, anyway. Hammer consults his big bad guy's bank of TV monitors, from which he will choose who in his organisation is still active or otherwise out of commission. I really don't see the point of having a bank of TV or computer monitors that require you to get a sore neck when you look at them. What's wrong with an iPad? Speaking of subplot, we're in the middle of the issue, so it must be time to deal with them. There's a few pages detailing Harry and Liz Osborne deciding to move back to Manhattan as Harry wonders if he should make a go of being a more heroic and kinder and gentler Green Goblin. He doesn't, but this will pave the way for the Phil Urich Green Goblin series some years down the line. Then Peter has a chat with Aunt May and Mary Jane comes home from another night partying, telling Peter she has learned that Jonathan Caesar is behind her losing modelling gigs and that she will deal with the problem herself. Again, the structure of these stories is starting to feel somewhat samey. We'll open with a Spider-Man action beat, a pause whilst we run through whatever subplots are happening at this moment, and then back to the action. Now, some of this is the predictable nature of serialised comic book superhero storytelling, and some of it is the standard three-act structure, but surely the subplots could be weaved into the story better than they are here. Len Wein managed it. Joe David McLean is up to the task. The next day, Peter ditches class, again, to try and pick up the spider tracer instead of doing it yesterday evening when he wouldn't have had to skip yet another class and, even worse, an exam. It's no wonder you're constantly being kicked out of college. Peter locates a van heading to Queens that rather comically has the Scorpion driving and Musgrove tied up in the back. See, the Scorpion didn't think this through. With Jonah a no-show and Hammer betrayed, he stuck with a hostage that has no value. He thinks that the kingpin will want him, so that's where he's headed. Personally, I think this is a real long shot. Why would the kingpin even touch a hot potato like this? Surely the best move would be to take him to Justin Hammer and say, yeah, look, sorry about that, but here's the guy you wanted. We cool now? That doesn't happen. Spider-Man, rather recklessly instead, webs up the windscreen and the scorpion crashes. Michelini tries to cover the stupidity of this action in the dialogue, mentioning Spidey's locating of the tracer from within the van, despite McFarlane not drawing any Spider-Sense lines. And he tries to cover the ineptitude of his actions by having Spidey think that this was clearly a safe course of action as the van was slowing down to turn. Again, this is not seen anywhere in the artwork. 
Now, remember how I mentioned earlier that it seems editor Jim Salakrup was telling Michelinie to write simple stories that can be drawn to feature lots of big panels and any discrepancies could be fixed in the dialogue. Remember how I said this approach was about to reach its nadir? Well, lovely listener, here we are. This is where the art gets really odd in terms of how it plays into the story. The rhino and Blacklash show up, having tracked the scorpion due to a tracer in his tail. The rhino smashes through the van. The van is suddenly nowhere near a road, but is, according to the dialogue, near the Old World's fur site. However, at no point does McFarlane draw any of the popular or recognisable landmarks from that site that were still in existence in 1989, instead drawing a bunch of nondescript warehouses. If you've seen Men in Black, you'll know the site of the World's Fur, and how easily it could have lent itself to a wonderfully drawn, action-packed Spider-Man sequence, because to my recollection, I don't think the Spider-Man's been here before. McFarlane eschews all of that, implying that he either didn't draw the site of the World's Fur at all, or he didn't read the script properly. Michelinie tries to keep covering for him. At one point, he refers to Spider-Man being atop the pavilion, but whatever it is Spider-Man is stood on, it bears no resemblance at all to the New York State Pavilion, which, if you're a native New Yorker or, again, have seen Men in Black, will know his three large cylindrical discs atop a central column. Even when McFarlane draws what purports to be the Unisphere, it's implied to be right next to the pavilion, which doesn't look like it's the case. And besides, what McFarlane draws is simply a flat silver ball. It's not a world map or transparent as the real Unisphere seems to be. It's just a big boring ball burring. As such, what could have been a really interesting and visually entertaining fight scene is bland and uninteresting. Either because McFarlane didn't get the note, again, that this was supposed to be the world's first sight, or he didn't bother doing any research. As such, the fight's pretty boring, with Spider-Man tackling neither Blacklash or the Rhino to any degree. The Rhino rips the Scorpion's tail off, as apparently that's what Hammer wants back, and they run. The Scorpion also makes good his escape, off-panel and unseen. This was pretty much a debacle as far as Spider-Man's concerned. He fails to apprehend any of the bad guys, with all three getting away. This is after also letting Hydra-Man escape a few issues ago. He does manage to rescue Musgrave, which is something, I guess. But all things considered, this isn't his finest hour. To make matters worse, Spidey asks Musgrave if he can take a few photos because he has a friend who is a photographer. So he didn't even set up his camera and has potentially jeopardised his secret identity to the military. Well done. Good job. It's here that this run is starting to fall off a cliff. Taken as mindless fodder, these are enjoyable issues. But the bloom is off the rose with McFarlane as a sequential storyteller, as there are times where he just isn't very good at it. He covers this with his heavy inks, big splash pages and iconic moments, and MJ in the nude, but overall, it's losing its luster. Michelinie likewise isn't turning out his best work. The scripting is formulaic, dragged out in places, too quick in others. 
subplots from other Spider-Man comics are given too much attention. And subplots from this book, Nathan, the Black Cat, Caesar, Peter's return to college, are either given only a passing mention or forgotten about for issues at a time. It's rapidly approaching pabulum. It's fun in the moment, but overall this would have just been forgettable stuff had a certain artist, whose star was in the Ascendancy, not been drawing the book. It's Citizen Kane Minute, hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a collection of special guests. Citizen Kane Minute will examine the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Okay, should we check on the email section? Matt Prather has emailed back. Hello, Matt. Hello, Andrew. Just dropping an email to let you know how much I enjoyed your last few episodes, which are a sentence I always like. I like hearing those words in that particular combination. Gives me joy. I have a special place in my heart for Book Rogers, but seldom revisit his exploits. I can barely keep up with the onslaught of stuff my beautiful wife tells me I have to watch, and it was something of an enjoyable visit with an old friend to recall that particular adventure. Oh, glad you enjoyed it. I have to agree with you that the Hulk's only solo adventure in the MCU canon is very underrated. I personally hope for more Hulk, keeping in mind that sometimes unanswered wishes are blessings in themselves. Yeah, maybe there is a feeling that if they did more Hulk adventures at this point, it just wouldn't be as entertaining. Like, there's a feeling they're not taking the character as seriously as they could. He's more of a comedic subplot supporting character now, isn't he? Hmm. The Prisoner and Department S both sound intriguing and are getting added to the huge list of things that I need to watch. Disney Plus seems to be trying for a monopoly on all my watching hours every week. Also, my granddaughter is ever vigilant about trying to force some anime down my gullet as well. Um, I, I, of all of them, The Prisoner's the best one. You know, the, the 17 episodes of The Prisoner are absolutely fantastic. One of the finest television shows ever created by man. So it very much deserves to, to go on your list. I would, um, I'd put that to the top. Get hold of a copy of The Prisoner, watch The Prisoner. Department S was, was fine. It's not as good as The Prisoner. It's nowhere near as good as The Prisoner. Matt continues, love the commentary on the Spider-Man issues as well. I have to go dig them out after hearing your thoughts on them to compare my memory of them to the reality. I find it a fun exercise and hope to hear more from you on Spidey's exploits. Thanks, Matt Prather. I don't plan this. That email literally ended up being in this episode just by dint of the fact that it was the first email I got after I recorded the last episode. So the fact that there is an email asking for more Spider-Man in an episode that is more Spider-Man is purely coincidental. Because if it wasn't, that would imply I knew what I'm doing. And as I think we've pointed out many, many times, I don't know what I'm doing. I make it up as I go. But thank you for that email, Matt. Speaking of Matt, Matt has also emailed, but this time it's Matt Evans. My eyes! The nostalgic goggles do nothing. Good day to you, Andy. Good day to you too, Matt. Yet again, I must apologise for my lack of correspondence. It's possible I may have been slightly distracted by ongoing Armageddon. Nonetheless, I've been listening to and enjoying your doings. Well, hopefully you'll be listening to the new Hey Kids Comics 10th Anniversary Special, Matt, which is... In the landing bay as we speak, soon to be taking off and landing in your earbuds. Some brief or not remarks on recent offerings, continues Matt. Spider-Man meets Red Sonia. 
Marvel Team Up was very much a mixed bag of a title, but I do enjoy the brief run of issues where John Byrne was involved. There's a certain period of Byrne where he just sprinkled gold dust over everything, and I'm the kind of fluff-brained comics reader who is quite content with an underwhelming story if the pictures are sufficiently pretty. Well, you're probably enjoying this Todd McFarlane David Michelini run more than I. Matt continues, interestingly, the ending of this issue of MTU, with the amulet thrown into the river, leads directly into Uncanny X-Men 190 and 191, in which a reincarnated Coolan Garth transforms Manhattan and its inhabitants into a Hiberian tableau. I was not at all into barbarian comics when I read these as a kid, so I had no idea that this story was tied to the Conan and Red Sonja until relatively recently. Only took 30 years to make that connection. Quick on the uptake, me. Well, I'd never made that connection at all. I, I must have read X-Men 190 and 191 at some point. But I don't remember that story at all. The Prisoner. Not much I can say here without launching into a very long essay, but it was an absolutely superb analysis of a truly singular series that made me want to pull up the box set and watch it again immediately. Hats off to you. Well, thank you very much. It's difficult to find something new or to find a new approach to a show as critically analysed as The Prisoner. And uh, I'm very gratified that that seemed to do it for you, because um, I love The Prisoner. One of my favourite shows. Absolutely adore it. The Incredible Hulk. Very enjoyable and even-handed review of a film that I think is both unfairly maligned, yet at the same time easily my least favourite MCU offering. I absolutely love everything about this movie, except the Hulk scenes, which I find almost unwatchably bad. Like PS2 cutscenes, bad. To be honest, despite the Anglies film issues, I much prefer the design and physics of his Hulk. It had oodles of mass and solidity, and most importantly, you see the man in the monster. A crucial consideration that very much brings Ruffalo's Hulk, the best Hulk, to life. Yeah, I do like Ruffalo's Hulk, but I do think I don't necessarily agree with the PS2 criticism. I think stuff there are scenes in things like Justice League and Batman vs Superman that I think are infinitely worse CG-wise than The Incredible Hulk. Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman's final third is is quite dreadful in terms of its CG. I, I do like that in The Incredible Hulk they at least try to give the Hulk a personality, like I mentioned, in picking up the taxi things and being boxing gloves with them and all that stuff. So, you know, fair enough. Nostalgia, continues Matt. This is something I've been thinking about ever since the announcement of the upcoming Superman 78 and Batman 89 comics. I'm exactly the target market for them, age demographic-wise, but the mere existence of the title sends me into a depressive funk. It makes me feel both that I'm being pandered to and gives an impression that comics are becoming stagnant, which is very much not the case. I know a lot of my fellow geeks are really excited about them and I've no wish to dampen anyone's enthusiasm, but it's not for me. I'm interested, very interested in Superman 78, I think, because we live in an era where the status quo of Superman for so many years, Lois doesn't know who he is, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, all that stuff, isn't really being tapped into at the minute. You know, in the comics now, he's married with, with a child, and in the new TV show, Superman and Lois, he's married with children, and it's been generally decided by everyone that Lois not knowing is stupid, so she can't not know anymore. And I think there's a place for stories where Lois doesn't know he's Superman, and we can have fun with that. I'm looking forward to Superman 78, I have to say, more than Batman 89. Largely because I like Batman 89, but I don't think it's this unassailable 
Batman film that everyone else seems to think it is. I have many, many problems with it. Not least Michael Keaton. I love Michael Keaton. I think he's a great actor. I think he's great in those films. He's not this unimpeachable casting of Bruce Wayne. I'm sorry, but he isn't. You know? So I'm looking forward to Superman 78. I will cast my eye over Batman 89 and see what I think of it. I'm all for talking about and enjoying old media and listening to endless podcasts about it, which is fortunate for me. I'm just worried of trying to resurrect it, continues Matt. My nostalgia drug of choice is the entire Clermont run of X-Men, but I've no wish to have him or my favourite X-Artist back. There have been a few titles that have attempted to pick up on the series from certain historical jumping off points, even now. John Byrne is doing an unofficial continuation, but I've no interest. It all seems a bit unhealthy. We can but move forward, dragged behind the chariot of time. These things are cyclical. After years of shitty or at least subpar X-Men comics, with occasional exceptions, we're now back to a really interesting period under Hickman's pen, and I wouldn't have it any other way. In Star Wars 2, I think we've all seen how rose-tinted nostalgia for the movies we saw in our youth can prejudice people against new takes on these ideas, and force, good pun, creators to keep pandering to us old gits. Much as I love The Mandalorian, its strength is not in its myriad Easter eggs and nods to history, but in the way it draws on its influences to build something new. Learn from the past, but don't live there. Speaking of which, WandaVision is exploring precisely this idea on several levels, in a really powerful, resonant and inventive way. I agree with that. I am, I am fully behind that statement, that you can't go home again. I can look at all stuff on this show, and I can even point out, you know, they don't make them like this anymore. And in the case of something like The Professionals, that's not a bad thing. The Professionals is incredibly chauvinistic, and you wouldn't want them to make it like that anymore. With the caveat that The Professionals still exists, and I can watch those episodes and thoroughly enjoy them, and find the chauvinism funny in a way that I wouldn't find it funny in a modern day show if that makes any sense. So yeah, I'm not one of those people who, who thinks that the past is something to be held on to. You know, one of the best lines in The Last Jedi, let the past burn. You know, and I think in some cases we need to do that. We need to keep moving forward in all aspects of life, not just in our entertainment. Because when you don't do that, you just stagnate and you just become boring. And you just become one of those guys who yells at clouds. And I don't want to be an old guy who yells at clouds. Not really. I do continue to have conversations with my children about the many myriad changes that are going on in society with regards to sexuality and race and all that stuff. And I think you can learn from them at a certain age as much as they did from you as when they were growing up. And that's the father becomes the son and the son becomes the father as, you know, as Superman and the Bible would have it. Matt concludes, I don't know, nostalgia is a tricky one. With all that said, I'm off to read some old comics that remind me of the long, long ago. All the best to you and the family. <laughs> well, there's a place for nostalgia, certainly. And closing out tonight is an email from Ben Rush. Ben doesn't email in often, generally just communicates via socials. Hi, Ben. Hi, Andrew. I just wanted to add on to your comments about why we in the UK find superheroes fighting in World War II or World War I distasteful. Well, I didn't say all of us. I want to put that out on Front Street. I said I find it distasteful i'm not I'm, I'm not trying to speak for anybody else to be fair our comics never really faked what war was books like charlie's war showed the true life history during that time there was battle 
that showed both sides and other countries' views of that time period, always close to the knuckle a step away from being an 18-certificate film as a comic. These and Commando were the books Garth Ennis used as his blueprints for war stories. Yeah, and see the thing about that, Ben, I don't know if it's the same for you because I know you're roughly the same age as I am. We had Commando in the school library. Those little Commando libraries, they were called. Little, they were like essentially like DC digests. We had them in the school library, which is where I read them. Um, and although I was more into at that age the the glossy nos- the glossy nostalgia, the glossy fantasy of Marvel UK, I did read them, um, and I did steer away from American World War Two comics, and still do to a certain degree. So I think it's I do think that that it's a different perspective on the same war, and I think British writers approach it differently as German writers would, as Australian writers would, as Irish writers, French writers, as all of those would approach those books. And it's and again I am only speaking for me. I have absolutely no problem with people who absolutely love the Justice Society. You love that stuff, go and read it with my blessing. May your God go with you. Good night. But uh, for me, it's not my bag, man. I do occasionally like the odd invaders story. But, you know, for the most part, yeah, just stay away from it. It doesn't bother me that it exists. I'm not offended by it. Um, But it does exist for the people that like it, and I'll just ignore it. Thanks. I think the norm, Ben concludes, was the closest to a Brit war comic America ever did until Garth Ennis arrived. Yeah, those early issues of the norm really are good. Tom Panneries covered all of them. They're well worth checking out. Anyway, just some thoughts. Cheers for the show. As always, Ben Rush. Well, it was nice to hear from you, Ben. And the mats. Which was like one of those episodes of Doctor Who where the Doctor meets himself. <laughs> Matt 1 and Matt 2. The do- You just call him the Matt? The Doctor? The Matt? I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, take care. That's the end of this one. Uh, hey kids comics at virginmedia.com if you want to email me and chat to me about anything that we have discussed this day and uh, take care stay safe be careful it's all gonna be better take care and i'll see you all real soon